This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, transforming the business of government, insights on resiliency, innovation, and performance, commemorating the 25th anniversary of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the Center. Today, governments face serious, seemingly intractable public management challenges that go to the core of effective governance and leadership, testing the very form, structure, and capacity required to meet these challenges head on. Government leaders and the agencies they lead continue to be walloped by the unforgiving realities of disruption and uncertainty, from pandemics to conflicts to economic and natural and man-made disasters. Chris Mim, Napa Fellow and Adjunct Professor at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University, assesses this situation accordingly. As we know, we're emerging from globally from an environment of incredible shocks over the last couple of years. First, of course, was the, the great pandemic of COVID-19, but also environmental disasters from, from related to heat, flooding, droughts, wildfires. At the same time, we've had continuing cybersecurity challenges and supply chain disruptions, and as well as other shocks to the system. In many ways, traditional approaches of government seem obsolete and incapable of properly responding to these disruptive events. Former GAO Managing Director Chris Mim explains this new reality. Large bureaucracies are constructed with and work best in environments of stability, predictability, and where standardized service delivery can be delivered. That's not the environment that we're in today. Rather, we are in an environment of these future shocks, where governments at all levels are confronting increasing and interrelated shocks to their system that are requiring new and different ways of doing business. And what was interesting is that the old traditional management categories of planning and budgeting and performance and stakeholder engagement and data usage and human capital and the rest are all still applying, but they evolve in dynamic and varied in different ways in an environment of future shocks. Given this new reality, now more than ever, government leaders need practical, actionable insights on how best to manage and lead through uncertain and disruptive periods. And that's why the IBM Center has published Transforming the Business of Government, Insights on Resiliency, Innovation, and Performance. This new book explores a fundamental question. What are the capabilities that governments need to have, governments at all levels, need to have in place in order to effectively anticipate, prepare for, respond, and recover from these series of shocks and other future shocks, which they may not even be aware of yet? The book does tackle this fundamental question, and it identifies capacities governments need to anticipate prepare for, and respond to crises, and build resiliency across five core domains. These domains are emergency preparedness and response, cybersecurity, supply chain, sustainability, and workforce. 
The book culminates with compelling insights and timely perspectives from academics and practitioners on a variety of other topics addressing larger themes in innovation and performance. This special edition of the Business of Government Hour gives you a sampling of the insights from a variety of topics found in our new book. First up is an excerpt from an interview I did with Professor Rob Hanfield, a contributor to our book who focuses on challenges to supply chain resiliency and his prescription for supply chain immunity. Your report, which I think is quite timely and very insightful, reveals significant gaps in the government's response capacity to to crisis of this magnitude. Could you perhaps introduce us or outline for us some of the some of the limitations of the response that was noted in a recent state procurement official reports? Yeah, and we we also interviewed, as I as I indicated. Uh, uh, chief state procurement officers in almost every state in the country, uh, 47 out of 50. I think we missed Alaska and maybe Wyoming. Um, but, you know, one of the things we found is that people just simply weren't prepared for this level of emergency. Um, they were they were almost frozen. And um, they really weren't prepared to, to, they didn't have a playbook. They didn't have a plan to deal with this kind of an issue. And that's really important that you, you have a plan, you have a playbook that can dictate, you know, what are the governance elements, who does what, uh, what is the, you know, what, what information is required, et cetera. And the, the second big problem was, was lack of information. We, we couldn't tell what was going on. We didn't know, you know, how much PPE there was in the country. We didn't know where the, uh, ish, where the problems were occurring. There was no centralized uh, data source that was reliable and dependable in real time. And, you know, things would change in the course of eight hours, as we all know. And so we, we really didn't have good data for making decisions. And, and the third piece is you know, we didn't have the right, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, expertise in how to manage supply chains. And, and now more than ever, I think we need government that has a, uh, knowledge of demand forecasting, acquisition, contracting, you know, modern warehouse management, uh, transportation management. This becomes really critical in a pandemic, and we just didn't have that. Your report does a wonderful job of identifying, Rob, certain, uh, the current gaps in strengthening that supply chain you just described. I was hoping you could identify some of those gaps and how important is it to focus on, you know, strengthening decision making, information sharing, and expertise? Well, well, those three components are are really really important. And uh, you know, just just by way of um, of introduction, you know, what I I actually worked on something called the Joint Acquisition Task Force during COVID, and uh, we interviewed a lot of the people in FEMA and the National Stockpile, and. You know, it was incredible to me that people were completely unaware that the majority of their stuff came from China. So, you know, th- this showed a, a you know a critical uh, gap there in terms of strengthening the supply chain. Is we need to have what I call better market intelligence, and what I mean by that is we need to understand at a minimum where our stuff comes from, and we need to understand also what's going on with in those countries where we're buying that stuff and being able to monitor those supply markets to make sure that we're not shut out, you know, we're, you know, things aren't changing over there and we're, we're on top of it. Um, that information also has to be shared. So the second piece of that is, you know, we also need to coordinate with our healthcare providers. Uh, 
And we need to understand what is the current state that they have in terms of inventory, in terms of uh, material. Um, you know, what, what's the current state of their ICUs? We're starting to see ICUs starting to fill up again. And then the, the third piece is, you know, we also have to understand medically and clinically what's happening around the world. And, and I call this a, a medical intelligence or a national healthcare monitoring system where we can understand, hey, you know, there's early signs of, you know, a, a rise in, in respiratory illnesses being admitted to uh, emergency rooms in China. Hmm, I wonder what's going on over there. Uh, there's suddenly a bunch of schools shutting down over there. Hmm, that's odd. We should look into that. So, so we need to have a better system of, you know, keeping track of what's happening in terms of medical signals from around the globe. And when we have those three parts of it working together, uh, you create, you know, a, a much more resilient, or what I like to call an immune uh, supply chain. Rob, would you share what a governance framework would look like for an improved government response when so many actors are required to get this happening. So what would that governance framework look like? Well, it's interesting you ask that because there was, uh, there was one written up before the pandemic. Uh, and it was called, it was called the, uh, the FEMCE, uh, P-H-E-M-C-E. And it was written by, uh, you know, a group of, of uh, uh, you know, government officials uh, as part of the uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of Pandemic Response or the ASPR office. That 2018 document, and, and I can refer you to it if you like, takes you step by step what should be done. It talks about building, uh, you know, the appropriate stockpiles. It talks about, you know, as you say, in uh, uh, who to alert during, during this system. Uh, it talks about a governing council, who needs to be part of that council. What agencies need to be represented? Uh, what are the kind of roles and responsibilities between the different parties? So it it, it really uh, it really provides a you know an excellent viewpoint of how to coordinate. Um, unfortunately, it was never executed, and that was that was the problem. It, it never got it never got executed, and unfortunately, that that really left us uh, a bit stranded. So, Rob, your report does a wonderful job of uh, identifying some of the issues affecting the supply chain. And, and one of those areas is the process issue. I was hoping you could tell us more about some of the current state issues uh, around the process for supply chain. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, when you operate a supply chain, there's, there's several processes that have to take place. First of all, you know, you have to have uh, the material available. Um, our stockpile was was not only depleted, but um, a lot of the stuff that was in there was was completely um, you know it was expired. It was the masks you pull on them and the, the elastic band would snap off. So you need to have some very good you know inventory management systems in place to be able to track how much inventory you have to make sure you're turning that inventory and to make sure that you're you know reordering it on a timely basis. The second piece is knowing where to allocate that inventory when there's an emergency and where to send it and how much of it to send. And this becomes really important if you don't have enough of it. So uh, we did a study and we looked at a number of the states across the country and we found there was really no particular pattern in how they allocated inventory of PPE to these different locations. So in other words, it was sort of being done on an ad hoc basis. 
And so we, we think it, it's important to have some kind of methodology to be able to improve that allocation system. And the third piece is you need to have, you know, what we call a, a control tower. And a control tower is just that. It's a summary of, of critical uh, elements that are occurring um, and that will keep people up to date. And it's just like having a, you know, a speedometer in your car. You don't want to know how fast you were going last week or 10 minutes ago. You want to understand what's going on right now. So we need to be able to link our inventory to real-time monitoring, real-time consumption, understanding you know, what's happening in the supply base, uh, what's happening to material that's in transit. And we need that kind of a dashboard that can help us understand everything that's going on so that that shared services group, that, that governing council, is, is constantly aware of what's happening and can make split-second decisions, react to problems as they're occurring. Would you highlight, Rob, some of the key supply chain technology issues that you identified? Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think I can summarize in one word, uh, visibility, right? Um, we didn't have any, any material visibility within the national stockpile. Uh, to We didn't even know where the inventory was. You know, I interviewed some people and they, they shared with me how you know, when material was was inbound, uh, people were taking pictures of it with their cell phones and uploading it to a, you know, a SharePoint because they didn't have basic barcode technology to track where the stuff was. Right. So it's incredible to hear that. But uh, I, my, my jaw, jaw just dropped when I heard that. Um, but, you know, again, we, we need to invest in technology for uh, our national response system, for our national stockpile, for our ASPR. And, you know, that, that requires that we have, uh, you know, some level of, of real-time monitoring of inventory. We invest in barcode technology. It's not expensive. We need to, to have the collection systems that would collect that, that inventory. Uh, and then we need to have um, a crosswalk to the hospitals. And I've, I've worked with a couple of companies. I worked with SAS, and they worked with the German government. You know, the German government could see exactly how many patients they had in every ICU in the country. They were able to collect that level and that granularity of data to better help their allocation, their inventory management. We don't have that today. We're running blind. Our, our hospital network has no idea of, of, you know, doesn't have the data to share with the government of, you know, what's our inventory levels? Are we, are we short, critically short on any materials? How many patients are we coming in? What's happening in our ECUs? What kinds of cases are we seeing in those ECUs? You know, that's all data that, that we need to be able to monitor, um, you know, if, if we're going to be effective in, in managing these, these future threats. And uh, today, again, there's, there's no visibility. And, uh, you know, it, it's problematic, um, but I, I think uh, people say, well, we don't want the government, you know, con you know, looking into our databases and monitoring us. It's not about monitoring. It's about, you know, being able to respond to, to a threat. So I think those investment in those kinds of cloud-based systems, they're not expensive, uh, but it's something that getting agreement, I think, is going to be the critical on, on how to deploy some of this technology. All good insights. You know, uh, your report, Rob, also, uh, I think it suggests, I, I, at least I inferred from it, that there's a suggestion in the report that uh, the government possibly should move away from the idea of simply increasing the strategic national stockpile, SNS, and think more in terms of a strategic national 
sourcing framework, which I found compelling. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and what does that entail? Well, it, it, it does uh, require, when you look at, at how uh, industrial companies source and, and manage it, you know, they dedicate people who do what's called uh, category intelligence that understand you know, deeply what's happening in these markets. Uh, who are able then to develop strategies by category around, you know, what suppliers should we be sourcing from? How much inventory should we be holding? Where should we be holding that inventory? So there's a whole set of capabilities around sourcing and managing supply chains. Uh, the SNS doesn't do that. They've got great people that are sort of like inventory clerks. I mean, they're, they're, they're managing the inventory, but they're not acquisition or sourcing specialists. And that's really what we need. Um, I think, you know, another thing we can think about is you know, leveraging some of the resources, the incredible resources the government has. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Air Force has all of these capabilities. We don't have to go very far. In fact, I think we could probably utilize Air Force intelligence, uh, you know, acquisition officers to staff something like this and uh, create a center and, and just to be able to monitor everything that's going on that are critical supplies for this country. Exploring cybersecurity resiliency when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of Business of Government Hour, transforming the business of government. Insights on resiliency, innovation, and performance. Since the advent of the internet, criminal groups, hacktivists, and state-sponsored threat actors have put governments in the crosshair of cybercrime. During the last half of 2022, the number of cyber attacks targeting governments increased by 95% worldwide, compared to the same period in 2021. The cost of public sector data breaches has also increased, with the average cost per incident of over $2 million. Government digital platforms and the sensitive information they store represent a target-rich environment. Here's former federal CIO and noted IT expert Tony Scott explaining why. Modern uh, infrastructure. Um, And it's not true just of government. It's true of, I think, institutions of all kinds. But for years, we've had a pattern and a practice of layering one generation of technology on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. And I like to use the analogy of, um, you know, 
just putting paint over something and putting a fresh coat of paint on and then another fresh coat of paint and, and so on. And at some point, um, you know, the buildup of those layers of paint starts to cause problems um, and, and can't really be repaired. You have to just remove all the old layers of paint and start with a new modern fresh coat of paint. And technology infrastructure um, is that way in, in many, many cases, but probably especially true in the case of governments and, um, and other institutions that have been around for a long time. Um, and so that's a big issue. And unless, uh, you know, the powers that be, uh, the, those including organizations that have to fund um, technology and in, in government are aware of the need to do this, um, the practice will continue. And, and these old layers of paint are, uh, I think you should think of them as multiple avenues for the bad guys to um, innovate and, uh, and hack and uh, penetrate um, organizations. So, so it's really important to modernize, upgrade, and get to the best form of technology that can be uh, available and, and eliminate some of these older, uh, more fragile um, uh, technologies. And, and one final point on that is it's not necessarily that the old technology is fragile, but it's the layering of these and the interfaces between them and so on that become uh, the points of vulnerability. Tony Scott, former federal CIO, continues to underscore the critical importance of cybersecurity resiliency across the federal government. Well, what we find in the modern era is that um, resiliency to cyber attacks is just one of the fundamental core competencies that organizations have to have. If they're providing services to citizens or um, you know, essential services in any capacity. And that resiliency can be thought of in a bunch of different ways. One is uh, recovery from an incident. Um, and these incidents can be anything from an actual cyber attack to um, the bringing directly on the institution to the disabling of core capabilities, and in many cases, these are outsized services or, or uh, outsource services or uh, cloud services or whatever, whatever they may be. If any of those are disabled and become unavailable, it can bring a halt to essential services as well. So there's many vectors uh, to resiliency. And I think for government organizations in particular, um, the the probably best practice I can think of is uh, to practice, practice, practice different kinds of recovery from different scenarios, uh, different things that could disable essential um, uh, technical capabilities. Uh, and, and cyber attacks being one of the biggest uh, of those. Tony Scott offers some critical advice to government executives on how best to enhance their cyber posture to facilitate resiliency. 
and collaboration and info sharing are key. Well, there's strength in numbers, um, and information sharing is one of those key capabilities where you can leverage the knowledge of others. Um, I'm fond of saying everything's been learned, just not by everybody. Um, and it's especially true in the cybersecurity space. Um, you know, the, the hackers are really good at imitation. If they see something that's been done successfully by others, they're very quick to copy. And unfortunately, on the receiving end, we're not always as capable of sharing the knowledge of others or willing to for a variety of different reasons. But it is one of our best defenses if we can um, figure out good ways to do that. And there are a number of, um, I think, uh, good ways these days uh, to, to enable that information sharing. But we also need some help legally. I mean, one of the reasons people don't share is they're afraid of legal liability, and we need to uh, do some things to make sure that that's not a barrier in, in most cases. Former federal CIO Tony Scott emphasizes the critical importance of leadership when building cyber resiliency. Well, I think cyber is an area where leadership really does matter, and it's got to come from the top. It's got to come from, you know, the leaders of of the institutions that we care about. Um, leaders can send strong signals about, you know, whether they care about this or not, um, and hopefully they do. And then practice what they preach. Um, they personally observe good cyber hygiene and they um, make sure their organizations practice good cyber hygiene. And I think that leadership from the top is critical to getting uh, progress in this super important area. IT modernization rests on a foundation of secure infrastructure and systems. Integral to any successful modernization effort is embedding cybersecurity and resiliency into every aspect of the journey. Claire Monterana, current federal CIO, provides her perspective on cyber challenges facing the U.S. federal government and how agencies are working to address these challenges to mitigate the risk and impact of threats to data, systems, and networks. This is the number one team sport that we are participating in, um, along with the Office of the National Cyber Director, CISA, uh, you know, NSC, NSA, right? There are a, a multitude of acronyms with all of our efforts focused on cybersecurity. So at, at the highest level, we're really architected a new model for cybersecurity across the federal government. You know, we're in a unique threat environment. Our adversaries are pointing an enormous amount of resources at us, at particular federal agencies and the, frankly, the whole federal enterprise. So it is really critically important that we work like a team to make sure that cyber defense is our singular goal. And we're also working to make sure um, at individual agencies that we're keeping, um, you know, Americans' information confidential, that we're preserving data integrity, that we're um, remaining accessible and resilient to these nation-state attacks. But in a lot of ways, it really does require us to work and think differently, to deploy new technology 
and very importantly, to adopt new mindsets. We cannot keep operating the way that we were previously operating and expect that we're going to have any different outcomes. So, you know, we published the zero trust strategy. Um, We made sure that prior to publishing it, that we took a period for public comment um, to make it better, right? We cannot do the work that we all do without our private sector partners, without academics and researchers that are spending every day focused on these areas. So we believe that the zero trust strategy was really showed how the federal government was leaning forward and leading in this area. Um, And we are also working very hard to make sure that we are cascading this message to all levels of the workforce. This requires senior leadership that is assuming you know, responsibility for the cybersecurity posture of their agencies, as well as building staff capabilities and technology solutions and architecture and budget and investment to meet today and tomorrow's challenges, um, and most importantly, delivering impact. So I'd say that, again, team sport, We're all working together collaboratively, but it is going to take the workforce really embracing this wholesale change in um, never trust, always verify um, as the new method at which we have to think about securing our missions. Just as prior waves of dramatic technological innovation have impacted our society and our common welfare. Today's massive digitization has wide-ranging implications. Global reliance on open technology underscores what makes communities prosper, notably social connectivity, communication, and collaboration. And these factors drive national and international well-being. At the same time, reliance on digital interaction makes them prime targets for cybercriminals. Current safeguards work some of the time, but fall short in many cases. Government leaders need to adopt a more proactive measure to get ahead of the risk. While technology shapes the consumption of information the platforms used for social discourse, the growing sophistication of cyber threats impacts public and private stakeholders around the world. Governments have a vital role in working with key stakeholders to identify cyber risks. This starts with building response capacity and resiliency in the face of these risks. But government officials need to go further. Executing leadership agendas that drive change towards a more resilient future, while also reflecting the unique identity and sense of purpose that identifies each government in the eyes of their constituents. Taken together, the insights and recommendations outlined in the cyber chapter of our new book provides a viable roadmap for governments to follow in the continual improvement of their cyber posture. Government agencies' reliance on digital networks and the response and recovery saved from a pandemic will likely only grow in their efforts to weather an uncertain future. What capacities do governments need to anticipate, prepare for, and respond to uncertainty? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security, 
in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, transforming the business of government, insights on resiliency, innovation, and performance. The unprecedented number and scope of catastrophic events stress governments, businesses, communities, and individuals. These cascading disruptive events have raised fundamental questions about what capacities governments need to better anticipate, prepare for, and respond to crises. A NAPA fellow and former managing director at the Government Accountability Office, Chris Mim, provides his insights and recommendations around what capacities are essential. The first capacity is the importance of networks and governance. As we all know, that the, the solutions to all of our cross-cutting problems are going to be networks. No individual agency or program is going to be the solution to a complex set of arrangements. As one practitioner put it to us, is that you're not going to have complex problems solved by individual agency silos. And so what we found is that networks don't form spontaneously, however. Rather, they are intentionally developed, and that is they choose a governance, the participants select a governance mechanism, and then they're carefully managed. And so the first imperative was to for urging leaders in government to be very intentional as to what sort of mechanism they're going to have, how that's going to be managed, making sure that they get the procedures down for that management ahead of time before an actual crisis occurs. The IBM Center report, Eight Strategies for Transforming Government, observed that performance management initiatives over the past two decades have helped shift the conversation within and across U.S. government agencies from a focus on measuring program activities and outputs to a focus on achieving mission outcomes. This refocus represents a fundamental shift in thinking, acting, and managing within the public sector and away from a focus on process and on what needs to be done to a focus on benefits and ensuring the desired impact of government programs. This fundamental shift is particularly important and difficult in addressing shocks that cut across agencies, levels of government, and sectors. Once again, Napa fellow Chris Mim. The second imperative was focusing on the planning to mitigating cross-cutting shocks. We all have experience in in strategic planning in individual agencies, but increasingly these types of future shocks are requiring either whole of government or in many cases even whole of society types of responses in order to deal with them. And so we wanted to catalog and take a look at what what does strategic planning look like when it goes outside the boundaries of individual organizations and indeed encompasses different sectors, levels of and levels of government. Risk management provides decision makers and the public with insights on the risks and consequences from the unexpected, as well as the opportunities from improved resilience. The tools, techniques, and methods for risk management are well established. However, the nature of risk management takes on new dimension and importance in responding to future shocks. 
The third imperative was about risk management. And that is not just managing the risk of any individual network participant, but rather net management of, the, of risks across an entire uh, network systemic risk management as it was how do we make sure that the, the that the, all those collective risks are, are are being effectively identified and managed and a key role in this regard for the federal government is identifying and sharing tools and techniques and methodologies for risk management across a, a network so that various participants are working off of a common platform the Edelman Trust Barometer has documented a crisis in trust in government over the last decade and this lack of trust stems from multiple causes. Once again, here's Chris Mim. The fourth key imperative was the importance of increasing citizen participation and communication strategies. We all know that, the, that certainly within the context of the climate disasters, is that those globally who have contributed the least are those that are being affected the worst and the first in terms of the climate disasters that we face. We need to make sure, not just on climate, but on all the future re- f- uh, future shocks that we face, that we provide voice and access and representation to all members of, the so- of society, especially those that have traditionally been left behind. We also need to make sure that we have communication strategies that speak to all levels of, of society in a language and using trusted voices that they will understand and appreciate so that they can take effective action. Chris Mim, Napa Fellow and contributor to the new IBM Center book, Transforming the Business of Government, Insights on Resiliency, Innovation, and Performance, highlights the final four capacities governments need in the near term to build resiliency across the enterprise. The fifth imperative is the importance of fast-tracking innovation and uh, transformation across the network. And here I just want to give a special attention to just the vitally important effort of the IBM Center and the National Academy of Public Administration for the Agile Government Center that they've uh, produced. That was deeply influenced to our thinking and how do we bring Agile Government using technology, using generative AI into actually spurring real real fundamental changes in the construction and, and the service delivery of organizations. The, the sixth imperative was on supporting data and data decision making. And, and here the basic idea is, is that the key elements that the network will need in order to effectively manage future shocks is not something that, ne- that can be decided upon in the moment, that is in the, when, the, when the shock is actually occurring. Um, there'll always be new data needs, but fundamental pieces of that need to be decided upon, including who will identify, who will gather the data, what level of quality, when and how it will be reported. That all needs to be decided ahead of time, especially in categories of how that data will be disaggregated, again, to make sure that all aspects and, and communities within the society are, are fully covered. We, in other words, successful networks sort out their data governance strategy before a crisis actually occurs. The seventh imperative was is about the importance of dedicating proper resources and getting the incentives right. And this also includes making sure that we are using risk-based budgeting and climate and climate-sensitive budgeting at, at all levels of government. The federal government is beginning to move out on this and it's, it has some very positive work in this regard, but much more can be done in terms of, again, getting the incentives right and getting risk-based approaches to, to budgeting. And then the final imperative is about investing the resources uh, to make sure that we have a, a shock-ready workforce. This means, first and foremost, filling the critical skills gaps that already exist within organizations, but also anticipating and understanding what are the skills, knowledge, abilities that we're going to need to be successful in not just 
next year, the three, five, and even 10 years out. Let's start recruiting and developing from those today. Let's start making sure that we have the cultures in place, the organizational cultures, that when we bring this talent in, we can effectively use the talents that, that are coming in in order to achieve our mission. To commemorate our 25th anniversary and identify innovative ideas that help governments move forward in the face of inevitable uncertainty, the IBM Center conducted a challenge grant competition. This competition solicited essays from academics and thought leaders describing a future of government that can help inform agency readiness, identifying strategic actions for innovation and performance to ultimately drive agency missions forward. Next up, we'll explore such diverse topics as AI literacy and agile oversight when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. This is the Center of This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center this week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. My guest today is Margaret Heffernan, author of Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. Margaret, you point out in your book, preparedness is a vital anecdote to passivity and pessimism. Could you tell us what are the four components of preparedness that you outline in your book? And really where I'm, what I'm focusing on is the type of thinking uh, that is distinguished is the just-in-case thinking versus the just-in-time thinking. And how do they factor in to really effective preparedness? Right. So I encountered, um, in the course of my researches, I would encounter this organization called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which is a bit of a mouthful. And I encountered it very early in its life because it was only created in 2017. Unfortunately, we'd all be better off if it had been created a lot earlier. And Richard Hatcher, who's the first director there, had this, I think, very brilliant insight, which is he said, you know, in an epidemic, there are kind of two modes of thinking. And one is the just in case, and this is fundamentally robust thinking. You know, this is um, what's the stuff we need to be working on now, because if or when a, an epidemic strikes, we need it and we don't have time. And in this case, what he identified, you know, look, because you know, talking to people who spend their lives in epidemiology. In the middle of an epidemic, the one thing you absolutely want to have is a vaccine. That's the holy grail. So the organization started funding vaccine development three years ago. And they identified candidates of diseases that were most likely, and if they broke out, um, would have the most dire impact. And among the first candidates that they chose, fortunately for all of us, were uh, beta coronaviruses. And what's very striking is that they did this because pharma, the pharma industry did not want to do it. You know, the pharma industry was not prepared to invest in things that might never happen. So this was just in case, and it was very inefficient because they were working on six diseases 
some of which may never create epidemics. And many of the vaccine candidates won't work. Now, right now, with, you know, with coronavirus, we have over 2,000 vaccine candidates. This is spectacularly inefficient, but it's fantastically robust because it means we can be reasonably confident that out of those, there will be a number that work and maybe some that are better for some circumstances than others. So that was stuff where he says you have to start early and throw a lot at it. And then he said there's the other kind of thinking, which is just in time, which is when you have an epidemic and if you have a vaccine, then you're going to have to move really quickly to mass manufacture that. So what you can do now is you can put all those contractual relationships in place. You can put the capital flows of, and of the availability of capital in place. But actually, you, when the moment hits, then you have to be able to work on a just-in-time, classic manufacturing assembly line methodology. And these two ways of working are perfectly compatible. And I think it's a really brilliant way of thinking about the future, which is what are the things, you know, if we're a company or even a family, what are the things that we should be doing just in case? Families take out insurance. Um, Lots of people buy fire extinguishers. They hope never to use either of these things, but they do it just in case. And then just in time, what are the things that we might have to do really quickly? And do we know where to go for those when we need them? Shows that long-term thinking and short-term thinking are not mutually exclusive. They're completely compatible. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan. And this has been The Center This Week. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of Business of Government Hour, transforming the business of government. Insights on resiliency, innovation, and performance. I welcome Ignacio Cruz, Assistant Professor of Communication at Northwestern University, to give us an overview on his chapter on the importance of AI literacy. We're sort of at the front lines of trying to understand and build AI into our work. And that's a unique challenge at this current stage. We're sort of building systems and trying to understand where they work and how they can work in our workflows. And one thing that is extremely important and a strategy that is often overlooked in this process is understanding AI literacy. Uh, AI literacy is similar to data literacy or um, computer literacy at its most basic level. It's just understanding a set of competencies to be able to evaluate what AI is how to use it in particular use cases, and how to measure and audit 
if we're getting the benefit and if we're actually deriving value from these systems. So this chapter is an introduction and offers a blueprint into creating that strategy and understanding how to communicate that to a variety of stakeholders, like the end users who are using these in agencies, uh, developers uh, who are making these technologies and trying to uh, piece together uh, the ways that we can take input data and uh, create outputs that are meaningful and impactful, and managers who oversee this entire process from procuring the technology to deploying it and adopting it into their organizations. So AI literacy uh, is, is an ongoing strategic um function in organizations. And this chapter offers a blueprint to look at how do we assess this this form of literacy? How do we implement it? And how do we measure and uh, set up a framework for continuous learning? Professor Ignacio Cruz from Northwestern University outlines his AI literacy framework. So AI literacy is a set of competencies that enable people to evaluate AI critically in their work, communicate and collaborate with AI technologies, and use technologies as a tool to get work done. I lay out a framework um, in this chapter outlining three different steps. Um, a blueprint, per se, on how to communicate and strategically implement uh, AI literacy in agencies. And the first step is the assessment step. So this, this is essentially just asking stakeholders in, in an organization, what are the goals related to AI? What's the vision behind AI? And that's important because AI is, is such a broad term, right? It, encap- it sort of encompasses technologies that are classifier technologies that classify data, technologies that can rank and filter and uh, you know understand patterns. And where people enter the conversation is important, right? So understanding at the basic level, how do they make sense of what AI is? The second component is uh, understanding what's the overall goal and the strategy for implementing technologies into a workflow. And what part of the workflow may necessitate a technology to either augment it or replace it to become automated. That really ties into the second element of building a literate uh, culture around AI, which is around implementation. And often this is one of the most difficult things to do in in organizations because it really uh, hinges on a co-creative or a co-constructive approach. And this is getting the right people in the room to understand well, what parts of the system are we augmenting? Uh, how do we communicate strategy effectively with the vendors who make these technologies and who help inform the design, uh, with managers who will provide the training on the ground to end users, and the users who will be interacting with this, uh, with these different forms of tools? I think that builds on to understanding that the creation, adoption, and implementation of a tool 
is doesn't really just belong in a silo. So building, developing, and implement, implementing a tool is not isolated within one agency. It involves what I propose uh, is sort of interagency agility. So being able to use pragmatic um, infrastructures that are already in place at in the federal level of sharing data, sharing best practices and methods of where, what kind of technologies are different agencies using? How are they leveraging it in delivering public goods? And something that we're still figuring out is understanding how do we, how do we build a tool that is trustworthy, uh, that is uh, consistent and reliable and uh, is, is has a degree of accountability for for decisions that have high stakes right so the implementation phase really cuts through understanding well how are we building this tool how are we getting it out into an agency's workflow and how are we making sure that we're not keeping our insights and our use cases siloed into one agency and sharing it across sharing that knowledge finally the the third point in this framework is evaluation and fostering a culture of continuous learning. What I mean by that is being able to understand, are these tools holding up to the promise um, in which we're, we're trying to implement them into our workflows? Are they doing what what they're designed to do? Could there be opportunities for these tools to be further developed? On the flip side, are there channels where end users can provide a sort of redress to kind of uh, enhance or maybe improve certain aspects of these tools that uh, at the end of the day may not be working? And finally, developing a, a culture of continuous learning is, is imperative. At this stage of just AI in general, we're still at the at the forefront of it, we're still learning and understanding the development of these of these different tools, cases in which they are useful, where they're not useful, and developing an AI literate uh, culture in an organization is focused on uh, learning how to learn. So breaking that down a little bit more, it's understanding not only what the tool is and the benefit of using a new tool, but understanding how that tool fits into a larger landscape, a larger landscape of priorities that an agency may have, of different use cases in which these tools may or may not be beneficial, um, of different, uh, you know, priorities, tools, and different kinds of objectives that agencies have internally um, in, order, in order to really further their mission. So I think that this, this framework of assessment, implementation, and continuous learning is a step forward in this direction of uh, building a more AI literate uh, workforce. Now I welcome Ken Lish, Audit Director at the National Science Foundation's Office of Inspector General, to give us a preview of his chapter on agile and new approaches to government oversight. My chapter in the book is about how an innovation in the Inspector General community is leading to deeper insights, better informed decisions, improved program delivery, and stronger program integrity across all of government. 
Traditional OIGs has been one of retrospective audits, evaluations, and inspections of agency programs and operations. However, spurred by innovations during the COVID-19 pandemic, the OIG community is embracing a more proactive role to engage with their respective agencies on the design and controls of new programs prior to implementation. By taking a proactive approach and partnering with their OIGs, agency leaders can incorporate data and expertise into their decision-making and program development process that is more timely, accurate, and broader. This type of proactive oversight has been termed agile oversight. In my chapter, I highlight examples of how OIGs have implemented agile oversight techniques to provide proactive input to international aid responses, identify risks related to newly granted authorities, and provide transparency into risks and spending plans for new programs. The broader impact of agile oversight has been so profound that the Office of Management and Budget institutionalized this practice with the issuance of Memorandum M-2204, titled Promoting Accountability Through Cooperation Among Agencies and Inspectors General. This memorandum, in part, encourages agencies to proactively engage with their OIGs to collectively review and assess program design, financial controls, and reporting measures prior to the release of funds from programs that are newly created, receive substantial funding increases, or require significant changes to program design. It's important to note that agile oversight is not a replacement for traditional audits, inspections, evaluations, or investigations. Rather, agile oversight is another tool in an OIG's oversight toolbox. OIGs are well-positioned to propel effectiveness in delivering outcomes and optimizing returns on investment while simultaneously maintaining their objectivity and independence. It is incumbent upon both OIG and agency leadership to build trust and strengthen their relationships as a normal course of business. OIG and agency leadership should hold routine meetings to have candid discussions in a non-audit setting that facilitate open dialogue and allow for discussions on areas that are of most value to the agency. By putting in the hard work during these easy times, both parties will be well-positioned to work collaboratively for the benefit of the American taxpayer during the next national emergency or mission expansion. These strengthened relationships and new approaches to oversight will provide a mechanism for agency leadership to collect more accurate and timely data, conduct more informed analysis, make better decisions, and take smarter actions. By collaborating with OIGs, agency leaders will have access to higher quality data and insights that can inform decisions and improve programmatic delivery when it's needed most. Thanks for joining me on this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the release of our new book, Transforming the Business of Government, Insights on Resiliency, Innovation, and Performance. This book and all center books are available at all national booksellers and online platforms such as Amazon. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.